Hi, it's Bob from Royal Spa. Soaking in a hot tub full of Epsom salts is the absolute best way to minimize everyday aches and pains. And we know all about Epsom salts at Royal Spa. Royal Spa hot tubs are the only hot tubs on the market that can safely and effectively use Epsom salts. Made right here in Indiana, Royal Spa hot tubs are the highest quality hot tubs on the market. Visit any one of our three Indianapolis locations or visit royalspa.com. Ah, Royal Spa. You're listening to the best of Kevin and Query on 93.5 and 107.5. The Fan. Uh, the interim stint for Jeff Saturday was 1-7. and seven. It was a seven-game losing streak uh, to end the season. Uh, last night on this station, you heard Colts Roundtable Live and Rick Venturi, a person who had been an interim head coach for the Colts, share his thoughts on Jeff Saturday. And Jake, you found them to be um, a bit enlightening. I did. You know, Rick is a guy that was an interim coach on a couple of different stents, as a matter of fact. I mean, most notably, he was the interim coach of the Colts back in 1991, which was not a good year, obviously. That led them um, to end up, and I believe it was Ron, I'm pretty sure it was Ron Meyer who was who was fired. Ron Meyer, who himself, by the way, had been an interim and then become the head coach. He was the only interim coach in Colts history to then be hired as a head coach. Um, but Rick Venturi took over in 1991. Probably his biggest thing that happened during his tenure as the interim coach, which, again, not a good season that he inherited. He suspended Eric Dickerson, which was a huge deal because Dickerson was holding out and was really just kind of a pain in the backside. And so he suspended Dickerson. That was probably the thing with which he was most known during that stint. Uh, He later was an interim for the New Orleans Saints. Actually, after, I believe it was Jim Mora, who would have, I can't remember if Mora was fired or or stepped down midway through the season in 1996. So Venturi's record overall, 2-17, a a little misleading because of the situations that he was in. But having said all of that, obviously he has worked under, you know, some great coaches along the way, notably that dream roster of, you know, Nick Saban and, you know, working for Bill Belichick in Cleveland. There were a ton of great coaches. Kirk Ferentz, I think, was there. But anyway, Venturi um, last night was on Colts Roundtable and was summarizing the Colts season and notably his critique of the job of Jeff Saturday and didn't really hold back. Here's how it sounded. In my world, he gets a very poor grade, okay? And maybe no fault of his own. I just feel like that, you know, he's way over his head. You know, it's like you uh, it's like you take a chiropractor and you make him the head surgeon at Ascension or at the Cleveland Clinic. It's just, you know, you're you're a, you're a snorkeler. You have a surface knowledge of what this job is all about. And you're in the you're in the ocean, you know, with guys that have learned their craft and busted their craft and are totally knowledgeable A to Z. And it's just not it's just not the same. And you know, we can rationalize. He can rationalize on why you know what he why he couldn't do this. But you know, at the end of the day, that seven games, that last seven games, I would say I was here in the '80s, early '90s. You know, I remember 98, I remember 2011, and I would say that there is no worse stretch in the history of Indianapolis Colts football. That last statement's pretty indicting, Kevin. Yeah, and um, I, I would certainly say, without looking too deep at it, I would certainly say it ranks right up there with any other stretch. Again, it's incredibly embarrassing, and yeah, I don't know if I made this too clear early in the show, but I want to go back to it. I, I do think, and we'll see when Jeff Saturday gets the interview and if he can woo Jim Irsay again, because we know from a word standpoint in an interview setting, that is when Jeff Saturday is at his best. But I do think the embarrassment late in the year got to the level where even Jim Irsay knows I can't continue this a bit of a hopeless romantic relationship that I really, really wanted to work. And honestly, Sunday's result... And how embarrassing that was to finish it might have been kind of the nail in the coffin on that front. Again, we'll see. Chuck Pagano talked to Mercy out of it once. We'll see if Jeff Saturday, who, again, he holds in higher regard, could do it again. Um, 
So, yeah. Now, here's the thing. Jeff Saturday, though, despite all the noise, if you will, um, you know, the critique, and again, as I said earlier, perhaps somewhat of an indicting thing about Jeff Saturday or maybe what, and follow me here, when Jeff Saturday took the job and there were so many people, Bill Cower notably, that had been in the coaching fraternity that were like, this guy is totally in over his head and this is totally out of left field and unwarranted because he hasn't paid his dues and he doesn't understand what it takes to be a coach in the NFL. And a lot of those statements I think people took offense to. A lot of people thought that they were being, that the, the those that were saying it were being far too xenophobic or far too myopic about the the coaching industry itself. But when Jeff Saturday... Um, comes out then and is bullish about some of the things that took place, then maybe that actually validates some of those critiques of him in the fact of, gosh, is he so naive to coaching that he doesn't even realize how poorly this went? But Jeff Saturday yesterday, one thing that he did say that I also found interesting is for all of the criticism, all of the talking we do about the Colts and the poor finish and historically bad uh jeff saturday says actually he doesn't think they're as far off as everyone else does not nearly as far as y'all think i've seen some articles here recently so i can assure you a lot of shots fired and uh, i don't think we're nearly as far off as you guys believe we are i I think the 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 line in football between winning and losing is is very narrow and uh there's things that we have not done um that i believe habits that are created in march and april and otas and preseason and you know early in the season they pay dividends in november and December, right? Unfortunately, I didn't have that opportunity for those things, but those moments matter. Jake, um, you brought up that moment two weeks ago in the Giants game. Don't you think that's something Jeff Saturday could have instilled in his two months on the job to where if our quarterback gets smoked and a player is celebrating inches away from that player, that we react in that moment. That seems like a rather simple thing that could be instilled into a football team in a month and a half. I don't even know, Kevin. On the job. You know, I don't even know that it's so much that you have to – you shouldn't even have to tell players that. Actually, to, to be truthful, and again, I, I, I'm, I'm hesitant to do this because I don't want it to sound like – that I just pile on Chris Ballard all the time. It's almost an easy target at this point, and I don't want to be that guy. I really don't. However, I guess I'm going to be because that comes back to the, you know, the most overrated term that we hear in sports all the time, I think, is culture. Well, every single every single franchise, program, whatever, touts their culture. Literally every one of them. But it's one thing to talk about it, Culture to me is something that you never, the only, the true measure that a franchise or a team has culture is they never say the word. The second you tell me you've got great culture, the second I think to myself, no, you don't, or else you wouldn't have to tell me that. I'd know it. Well, how would you know it, Jake? I'd know it when a guy's laying on the field hurt and the defensive player that hurt them is laying down celebrating next to him my culture is that my guys are going to show that they stand by each other as a team they have culture they don't talk about it they just have it there is an inherent and to me you shouldn't have to even explain those things if you have the right people in place and you have brought them into a franchise in a system where it is made very clear that that is the kind of thing expected of them and I don't even know that that's I mean, that should have been established long before Jeff Saturday ever walked in the door. But yes, he, he could have reinforced it somehow. You know, I'll go back to something internally. That, I mean, yeah, I'll go back to something that Jeff Saturday uh, really debunked yesterday, or at least tried to, I should say, in that you can't compare his interim situation to others around the league. And he pointed directly to Carolina. And if you look deeper at Carolina's situation when Steve Wilkes took over, they were 1-4. They had just lost back-to-back games by double digits. They fired their defensive coordinator. They then traded away their best player a few weeks later. They played four quarterbacks this season. The four quarterbacks, Baker Mayfield, P.J. Walker. P.J. Walker, Jake, started half of Steve Wilkes' games at quarterback. Right. Sam Darnold and good old Jacob Eason even got a few snaps. Um 
They went six and six the rest of the way. Jeff Saturday walks in here. The Colts are three, five, and one. This wasn't some godforsaken bunch. They had, I think I only lost one game by double digits at that point. They had beaten a couple playoff teams for for what it's worth, and yet they go one and seven the rest of the way. They have these weekly embarrassing performances. Where I was disappointed Jeff Saturday yesterday is for a guy that has preached so much accountability, and that's the most popular word we seem to hear from players and from him, I just heard excuse-making for 25 minutes in explaining how his two months went. Um, He was dealt a difficult hand to the nature that it should be one of the most embarrassing runs in Colts franchise history. Not at all. Um, and, And that's where I think if you're Jim Irsay, you've got to think to yourself a little bit like, man... Would have liked to have heard a little bit more of a, I didn't do my job to the level that needed to be done. I feel like if I have a full offseason to do it, I can instill some other things. This is a guy that a month and a half earlier said it's all about the wins and the losses. Well, that's the case. One and seven. And again, being the laughingstock of the NFL for the final month and a half of the of the season, that to me is no endorsement to bring him back. It wasn't like they were losses either. There was like, ah, oh, they were close or this and that. They were like blow the doors off you losses or like super embarrassing I mean, losses teams like going on 20 30 point runs against you. yeah it's not like you oh the, they missed they lost and they missed a field goal they the lost biggest 20 thing, to 17. the biggest thing for me at no point when i was watching games this year did i look over and feel like jeff saturday had this command of the sideline it always kind of looked like he was the it was like celebrity family feud like it wasn't a real episode right it was like the celebrity fill-in. It was like bringing the next Ring of Honor member to call plays next week. Kind of. I mean, it just felt that way, right? Yeah, and I will reiterate, I do think Jeff Saturday is a candidate in Jim Mercer's eyes, but I think the embarrassment that unfolded late in the year is something that even Ursa himself has had to admit and has had to acknowledge. Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Kaskali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Kaskali is right for you. Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Kaskali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Kaskali is right for you. 8 o'clock hour is upon us. Good morning to you on a Tuesday. Hope you are set for a spectacular day here in Indianapolis or that it will be a spectacular day for you. Jake Cray along with Kevin Bowen, Mark Dykton flying the controls for us. Joel A. Erickson will join us in just a couple of minutes before he does so. Let's go to the phone lines. We'll be talking a lot about Jeff Saturday and his address of the media yesterday. Chris Ballard will do so couple of hours from now after this show granted brian joins us at 239-1070 hi brian good morning to you brian you there no brian come on (laughs) mark what'd you do to brian mark try it again brian you there how about now you got me now yeah sorry about that good morning times a charm brian sorry about that all right no problem boss hey i just was listening to the slam jeff saturday show today and uh while as a unhappy Colts season ticket holder. I was looking at the schedules a little bit, realizing that we did play five out of eight playoff teams, and the Steelers were also in the hunt to make the playoffs up until the very end. Obviously, also played the Eagles super tight, man, all the way to the end, and then Jalen Hurts, who probably would have been the MVP if he didn't get hurt. He goes and makes some awesome plays to beat us. You know, obviously, the Cowboys were on a roll. We played them, and while it was a debacle, we played them extremely hard for three quarters. Uh, So, I just think that uh, while Jeff, you guys are making it seem like that he had the most awful season in history. He played the Vikings, and obviously we had a horrible collapse there, obviously. But, you know, we played some pretty dang good teams, pretty tough. Brian, 1-7. and seven. The point differential, I believe, was negative 80. That would be good for 28th in the NFL if you compare all those other teams to a 17-game schedule. I, I just... I, I don't see how you sit here at at the end of the year and there's a lot of on-field stuff that you point to and think that man deserves a job full-time. No, I wouldn't say that he deserves a job full-time, but I don't don't think it was the 
worst coaching job in history, basically, which seems like, I mean, you guys basically been crapping on him for a whole hour. So, when, <laughs> you know, I just uh, well, Brian, I thought, you know, he, uh, he certainly has a lot more culpability than what he showed, I think. And maybe, obviously, this job's not for him. I thought the rah-rah attitude was going to be good. It might have helped us. Obviously, it did the first two games. You know, we, if it wasn't for Jalen Hurts coming alive in the second half of that uh, Eagles game, we probably would have won that game, and who knows what could have happened. You know, last night, TCU was only down 10-7. <laughs> well, I don't think that's a fair assessment, but I get it. Well, but I mean, if you look Thank at the Thank you, second, Brian, for the call. Yeah, and I appreciate it, Brian. Listen. And, and I appreciate the counterpoint. I do, and I like – Brian, I love Jeff Saturday as a guy. I do, and I, I – if if that's where they want to go, then I I certainly hope it works out. It just spiraled so out. I of just control. think the second half scores are what you have to look at when teams are able to make adjustments at the half. And and again, in terms of saying it's the worst stretch in Colts history, you know, don't shoot the messenger. I mean, we played the audio of Rick Venturi saying that. I I didn't necessarily say that. I, I've seen some pretty bad Colts football since they've come to Indianapolis, but. Um, I appreciate the counterpoint as well, and I appreciate Brian's enthusiasm and and passion for the team. I our job is to objectively say what we observe, and and if you look at the eight games, Jake, the interim jolt was there at the start. Beat the Raiders, the Eagles game. He points to, and then that's when it really started to wane. To chat more about this, Joel A. Erickson from the Indianapolis Stars with us. Joel, if you don't mind, um, for those that missed it, you, your piece Sunday after the game, I think shed some more light, and I think Nat Newell, your editor, also had some information that, that kind of further proved your point, but for those that might have missed it, could you give us a little bit of detail on just exactly how the Jeff Saturday eight-game tenure relates to those other interim stints around the NFL and really the history of the league? Yeah, so so Nat, uh, who's great at, at pulling up numbers and finding all this stuff and does a, does a great job for us, had a spreadsheet, and um, I, I was just kind of looking at one and seven, and if if you go back, if you, if you, if you say longer stints, the, the bigger sample size stints of interim coaches, so we, we set it at six games or more, uh, you have to go all the way back to Dave McGinnis with Arizona in 2000 to have a worse record than Jeff Saturday had with the Colts. Uh, and McGinnis went 1-8. So, you know, it was 1-7, it 1-8, basically the same type of thing. The other thing was he took over a team that was, the Cardinals were 2-5, and five, I think, uh, before that. Uh, whereas, I mean, you know, the Colts had another win, another tie on there. Um, so yeah, just it, it's it's the worst long term interim stint in more than two decades. How many coaches fit into that criteria? Uh, Seventeen, and that includes Steve Wilkes, who went six and six with Carolina this year. So it, it's it, there's a I mean there's a lot of coaches. It, it, it the thing is like you think of interim coaches as taking over bad teams and kind of just playing out the string, but generally uh, off. Actually, more often than not, the interim coach does better than the person who was fired earlier. Now, I remember seeing something like that, and I guess that that's something that I wouldn't have initially thought of. But you know, you point to Steve Wilkes, for example. I mean, yeah, the, there are Rich Passaccia last year. That is something that I don't think we maybe think of a whole lot with the interim coaches. But the the, the coach that got fired is usually fired for for a reason. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think you can, you know, I think. Obviously, there were reasons that Frank Reich was fired, but you know he, he was forty thirty three and one um, with a he, he was seven games over five hundred. The, the interim behind him was is six games under five hundred in, in just eight games. You know, and I think just some of those numbers, like you, you can even try to break it, you can get down into the weeds of offense, defense, what they did, didn't do, but ultimately, it, I, I just kept thinking if if you're going to fire Frank Reich for um, not being able to win with this roster, doesn't that have to apply to the interim too? It's it's the same roster essentially. I mean, you, you know, Jeff Saturday didn't have Jonathan Taylor for three games. Well, Frank Reich didn't have Jonathan Taylor for three games. You know, he didn't have Shaq Leonard most of the season. Frank Reich didn't have Shaq Leonard. You know, it's it's pretty much the same thing. Um, and and it, I guess you know they're, they're sort of asking us to judge it differently, which is. Not what the first half of the season I thought was the lesson that we, that we were taught. Let me give you guys both a counterpoint that was just sent to me that I think is fair. I want either of you to to answer to it. 
Uh, not that you guys are the ones that said it, but um, hey, Jake, wasn't Mike Vrabel 0-8 during Jeff Saturday's tenure as an interim coach? I get the the point being made there. Either one of you guys? Say that again. Wasn't Mike Vrabel? So in other words, we're sitting here saying like Jeff Saturday had this disastrous thing and 1-7 proves it. Uh, Mike Vrabel was 0-8, was he not, in the last eight games? And yet we say that Mike Vrabel is you know, one of the elite coaches in the NFL. Well, I think the Mike Vrabel, my counter to that would be the Mike Vrabel resume has a whole lot of good on it that can overcome seven straight losses to end the season. It's not good, but I think there were a lot of injuries at play for Tennessee, and also they fired their GM midseason, some dysfunction within that organization. Again, it's not a great run, but it's not a good run at all, but... I I'm think playing Mike devil's Vrabel. advocate, but there were some things that Saturday had to contend with as well, including injuries and turmoil around him, right? Yeah, I don't think to the level of that. I mean, they were on a quarterback they signed two and a half weeks ago. Fair enough. Yeah, I'm I'm in the same I'm in the same place. You're you're what what you're doing when you're doing that is you're asking us to sort of ignore everything Mike Vrabel's done before this. Um which you know, if you if Jeff Saturday had something before this, then we could give him credit for that. But he doesn't. So, um, you know, I think Mike Vrabel, you know, generally winning the AFC South up until this up until this collapse this season, maybe maybe it puts him on on more of shaky ground than he was when they fired John Robinson. Um, but his his lifetime record, he's still fourteen games. Over five hundred with the seven with with the seven or eight game losing streak or whatever it was in the season this year. It, so that's that's that would be my counterpoint is there's there's a much longer track record whereas Jeff Saturday doesn't have one. yeah that's yeah, fair. I mean the number one seed in the AFC with Derrick Henry missing half of last season. I think Mike Vrabel gets the benefit of the doubt um, in that regard. Again, Joel A. Erickson from the Indianapolis Star with us here on the Payless Liquors Hotline. Um, Joel, I guess last one for me, Saturday-related. He mentioned the phrase significant change. That is something he would instill if he were to get this job full-time. He would not go into detail on what that is. Uh, based off your best guess, what, what do you think he was meaning behind that? Um, so that that was, that's, without him, he, he didn't give a ton of hints on it. I felt like, like, was it scheduling stuff? Was it? It's got to be stuff that he couldn't change, you know. And I know we were told that they they had more one on ones in practice, like ones on ones in practices. That was something he could change. Um, I, I, he could be talking about the fact that he would hire his own offensive coordinator, who's going to come in and change the scheme. Um, he could be talking about stuff behind the scenes that we don't see very much. Uh, there just wasn't a lot there in terms of hints of what the big significant changes were. The schedule, like, it could be scheduling stuff. He could just like the day to go differently and um, the way responsibilities are divvied up among coaching staff to be different. Uh, I, I don't know. I, I wondered if that significant change was something that would be obvious to us from the outside or if it would be something that was more of that football stuff that happens behind the scenes that sometimes they assume that we just can't grasp or um, understand. Joel A. Erickson is our guest. He is with the Indianapolis Star, of course, covering the Colts. Joel, Chris Ballard is going to address the media here in about two hours, a little over two hours from now. Um, What's the burning question that you want to find out an answer if you were to you know we'll see how truthful he is but if you could put truth serum truth serum in him top questions what uh is he comfortable with the way the with how much control he has over the team right now and and how much influence Jim Mercer has had on uh some of the major decisions you know and does he expect to have the kind of decision-making power he needs going forward. That's that to me is it's it's almost the the only question. Um, I, I don't know if you just jump right in with that uh, right off the bat, but that's the big one for me. How much control do you believe he has? Well, with the quarterback situation, you know, we we know Ursay uh, made the change to Ellinger. You know, they they he 
I forgot about this. I was reading through the owners' meetings transcripts, and said, you know, Ballard was kind of going back and forth with the Falcons on on what they were going to trade for Matt Ryan, and Ursay told us at the owners' meetings that he said, "Chris, you just need to get this done." Um, obviously, he had a, a significant amount of uh, he, he sort of said Carson Wentz isn't going to be back here. Um, I, I don't, I don't know, or I can't think of anything. But beyond the quarterback position, but they have the fourth pick in the draft. They're going to be making a quarterback pick here, I think most of us assume. And uh, you would assume you want your scout to make that decision, especially in a draft where it doesn't appear, I, I'm not a draft analyst, but it doesn't appear that there's a a, a once-in-a-lifetime quarterback prospect the, the way there was you know, when they drafted Peyton Manning or when they drafted Andrew Luck. So the, the scouting and, and the decision-making – it matters more in this one because it's not quite as, hey, we've got a John Elway type prospect here. We just take that one, um, and so I, you know, I think that that's that's as, as big a question as any. You know, Ursay has always said that he has he's always going to have influence on quarterback because it's one of the pillars of the organization. And I think that makes sense for the owner, but in terms of you know how much how much is Ballard's scouting acumen? Um, going to make that decision is, is the question for me. Again, Joel A. Erickson is with us here from the Indianapolis Star on the Payless Liquors Hotline. Joel, we saw four names late last night via uh, interview request uh, from the Colts. That would be Ben Johnson, offensive coordinator from the Lions, Aaron Glenn, former cornerback. He's now the defensive coordinator, also for the Lions. Uh, Raheem Morris, who has a head coaching stint in Tampa, was an interim in Atlanta as well. He's the current defensive coordinator for the Rams. And then Shane Steichen, who actually comes from a bit of a Frank Reich, Nick Sirianni coaching tree. He is the OC in Philly. Um, again, four interview requests. These all can happen this week because three of the four aren't in the playoffs and the other one has a bye. Uh, any of them stand out to you more than the others? Uh, I think the interesting thing to me with Raheem Morris is his experience on both sides of the ball. Um, you know, Yeah, I didn't realize he had that offensive stint for like several years in Atlanta. Yeah, four years in Atlanta, which... You know, you always hear coaches talk about how they have a specialty in one side or the other, and then, but as a head coach, you have to be involved on both sides of the ball. Um, Morris, obviously, his his background is defense. You know, he, he's been a defensive coordinator, defensive backs coach for a long time, but four years in offensive meeting rooms and wide receivers coaches. That's it in the passing game and everything. So that's that's a significant amount of time. Um, that's just kind of it's just kind of interesting to me that. He's got that experience on both sides of the ball. Johnson and Steichen, I think, are also very interesting to me just because this this Colts team is, like, the, the, the chief thing wrong with this Colts team based on what we just saw is the offense. And so whoever they hire, whether it's a defensive coach or an offensive coach, like, whatever they end up with coordinator, whoever's making those decisions is going to be paramount, I think, to me, especially if they're drafting a rookie quarterback. And those guys... Uh, I think what's interesting about both Steichen and Johnson is those guys have been coordinating offenses where it's not, they don't have, you know, one of, I guess what I sort of think of now as the, the holy trio of the, the of the NFL, Mahomes or Allen or uh, Joe Burrow. You know, they have, I mean, Ben Johnson had like a, a top five offense this year with Jerry Goff, who was a punching bag a couple years ago, you know. And, and Jay traded away Hawkinson. Good. Yeah, Jalen Hurts is very, very good, but he wasn't thought of that way going into this. You know, what Steichen and Sirianni have done with him have mattered, and I think that's that's a good thing for a Colts offense that's probably trying to break in a young quarterback and develop and give him some some help and easy throws that they're getting in some of these other offenses. Aaron Glenn, I know, uh, I covered him in New Orleans Um Whatever the line, I don't, the Lions don't have a lot of talent on defense yet. Um, I think that's probably coming in the next couple drafts and, and off seasons for them. But uh, Aaron Glenn is a very like he's a very captivating person when you talk to him in person. You know, so that's I think that's why he's been a a coaching candidate for a while now. Is is that you know he's he's just got a, a, a presence about him that that sticks out. Joel, yesterday some of the players on the roster 
spoke out or defended Jeff Saturday, saying that they would like to see him get an opportunity and that they, you know, liked playing for him, etc. Uh, maybe it's somewhat rhetoric, but why didn't they play that way? And did any of them elaborate on why they went out and basically mailed it in? Um, well, I, I think a lot of the, like, DeForest Buckner was one of the guys who, uh, who I think his quotes about, about Saturday were, 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 were um, taking with some, some half because of who Buckner is. And he, every time I talked to him after a game, he said he felt like guys were playing with effort. Um, Buckner was. Uh, but and he didn't really have a lot of times when you talk to him after games, you'd ask him, you know, why why isn't this turning into something? And he's like, I, we're just not executing. I don't know. Um, like I, I don't know that he would have had a good answer if we followed with. I wasn't there when that in that interview grouping whenever that happened. Um, I I don't know that anyone had it explained or had a good explanation for the disconnect between, you know. We think that these things were good, and they were helping. You know, they talked about, like I said, they talked about the one-on-ones in practice. They were competitive in practice, but they got increasingly less competitive in the games. Um, you know, that that thirty-eight to ten was it thirty-eight ten thirteen? I can't remember. But that Giants game was just completely uncompetitive. So um, Saturday was saying yesterday, you know. It, what you build in practice carries over to the games, but isn't isn't that what 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 everyone was so furious about with Reich at the beginning of the season that he was saying we've got we're doing well in practice and it hasn't carried over yet? Like I, I don't know. There's there's a disconnect there um, that's hard to explain because I, I don't know if anyone's given us a good explanation for it other than well, just give it time and the practices are going to take over. Uh, they, I mean, they had time. They had two months uh, to to for it to show, and instead it, it went the other way. Joel, last one from me, and again, Joel A. Erickson's with us here, the Payless Lickers Hotline. You mentioned um, the time that you've spent on the Saints beat. Obviously, that would have been with Sean Payton as their head coach. Um, your best guess as to kind of Sean Payton's thought process right now and potentially getting back into things. Well, so Sean, Sean operated with essentially, um, I, I would say, like essentially absolute power. In, in New Orleans, they did, they didn't have a very involved ownership. Um, the ownership was was very content to let their their football people handle it. And the front office in New Orleans, they, their their job when I was there and, and kind of still now, the way they approach it was just what he wants. We're going to figure out a way to get him, no matter the cost. Um, and so, I think that Sean Sean I think said on Fox his pregame show earlier this weekend, like ownership and the way the front office runs is maybe the most important thing to him. And just based off of when I covered that, when I covered him, I'm assuming that that's what he's looking for. He's looking for a chance to imp- implement his vision. I don't, Sean doesn't like to miss out on free agents. He doesn't like to, but when he wants a player, he wants a player. Sometimes for the good, sometimes for the bad for the saints. But he wants that player. He doesn't really care about the cost, uh, and and like I said, he sets the he sets the tone from the top down. Um, I, I would assume he probably wants a quarterback, uh, and, and but but I think more than that, the biggest thing is, you know, Sean came from the Parcells tree. He is a total control guy. That's what I'm used to, and I just find it hard to believe that he would be different than that after spending a decade and a half in New Orleans where he had all the power at his fingertips. Joel, what do you believe, you're a good person to ask this because you've covered outside of Indianapolis and the Colts, what do you believe is, and maybe this is a fluid question that is different now than it was even a year ago, what do you believe is the perception amongst the league of the ownership the stability, the top brass of the Indianapolis Colts? Well, when when the coaching change happened and they hired Saturday, I got texts from around the league and stuff that were sort of saying that felt like a very stable franchise, a very, like, do the right things, good reputation type of franchise. What is? But, the, but then the, the back end of those text messages was, What's going on there now? What what is this? And that's kind of what I've continued to get 
um, from from the rest of the league since then. That they're, they're, for, I think from the outside looking in, number one from the outside looking in, I can tell you Frank Reich did not have the like the vitriol that, that was directed at Frank Reich in the beginning of the season from the Colts fan base. That that didn't exist really outside of like outside of here I think most of the league was like that guy's done a pretty good job with a bad quarterback situation. And and then to make the move to go to Jeff Saturday to have some of the quarterback stuff happen, I think that I think that the the stuff that you're seeing on we have a tendency to discount what the national people say because oh they're national pundits and who cares what they think. But they talk like they what you're talking about, like they're covering different teams those guys have their fingers in all of the other teams, and they're, like what they're saying is coming from some of that. So I do think I do think this season changed the perception of what was considered a a very well run model franchise before what happened this season. Again, Joel A. Erickson from the Star. He will be there here coming up in about two hours. Chris Ballard season ending press conference at 10.30. Joel, thank you, man, and I will see you here in a bit. Okay, yeah, we'll see you, Katie. Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Kaskali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Kaskali is right for you. Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Kaskali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Kaskali is right for you. I think I'm going to leave five minutes early today. Well, okay, fine. Five or ten, which I kind of feel like the kid that had the doctor's appointment in elementary school and just how happy you were all day knowing that you could leave and not come back. (laughs) Do you remember the thrill of like... If you had a dentist appointment or whatever, and your mom was like, you, "We can go to McDonald's." Well, honestly, I mean, can you imagine a dentist appointment at ten thirty versus like one forty-five? I mean, one forty-five, you're not coming back. Right. Ten thirty, you're coming back to school. Then there's the other side of that, which was if you would um, get to stay home sick from school, and it was awesome until like eleven. Once like the game shows were over and the soaps came on, you're like, "This yeah. is terrible." Ooh, Grandma's house, Mark, you'd love this. WGN Cubs game, baby. There One o'clock. There you go. <laughs> One o'clock first pitch. Dial no. it up there, Grandma Donahue's. But if it wasn't baseball season, the price is right ends, and then they're like, "Well, wait a minute." Now, Bold and the Beautiful's on. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, Where's the VHS? I can pop. Yeah. I'm confused by the hourglass. Yeah, you know, on the uh, on the old soap operas. It has not been a soap opera at all for the Indiana Pacers this season. Tony East, who does an outstanding job covering the Pacers for SI and Forbes, locked on Pacers as well. He joins us. Uh, Tony, I want to start with kind of the the news of the weekend. Jake and I hit it a little bit yesterday, but Mark Stein's report that the camp of Miles Turner has turned down early extension talks, and I'm paraphrasing a little bit there. I probably don't have the language exactly right. Still got a month to go until the NBA trade deadline, but what did you make of that news? Yeah, the... I'll never forget, they, they rebuffed, that's the verb. Rebuffed, thank uh, you. I knew it was a good <laughs> SAT word. <laughs> it was, it was. Mark Stein, excellent reporting there. Yeah, look, if it had said that the Pacers offered the maximum they possibly could, which would be stupid of them, or that he rejected all extension offers, then this would be a huge deal, obviously. This would be the end of the discussion of extensions, and immediately if you're the Pacers, you have to start putting together your board of all the offers and thinking about what this means or your trade deadline plans. What, what, but it didn't say that, right? So I, I don't, what I don't know is, is this step one of negotiations or is this something more? And I think that is where this story starts and needs, and needs to be figured out a little more is, is what does that actually mean for a Miles Turner contract extension, right? Because be, the way they can offer an extension with giving him the the raise this year and then the salary would go down in the future but still be pretty significant and that allows them to offer more than other teams, because there's so many permutations, it can be a, a pretty sizable contract. And so this could just be step one of negotiations, right? You never come to the table with the biggest offer you're willing to offer, and if you're the player, you obviously want you want more and you're going to turn it down so on one hand this could yes be a be a problem if turner's not willing to accept an extension then yes they have to consider trading him still but if this is just natural negotiations then that's just natural negotiations we'll find out more in a month so 
I think that as this progresses, this becomes more serious, especially as the deadline approaches. But a month away, I think it's a negotiation day one for the, for the two parties. Tony, in your gut, 1 to 10 scale, 10 being the most, obviously 1 being the least, uh, what is the level of desire for the Pacers to lock in Miles Turner? Yeah, I think the Pacers are probably closer to 5 or 6. Now they know that he fits really well with their core. It's, you know, it's in their age range for success now. You know, they're younger two stars that they're building around 22 and 20 years old. Turner's close enough in age that, you know, as they try to get good and, and take the next steps, he could fit with that timeline, which was not thought to be the case before the season as much as it is now. Uh, so I would say five or six, maybe even a little higher, but, you know, in, in the flexibility spot that they have, it's not like they're desperate to keep him or that he's their only option or anything like that. I would I would tend to agree with you on the little bit higher. I'd put that more at like an, honestly, probably an eight, nine, which means it's probably a seven, right, wow. between the two of us. But other side of it, Miles Turner, uh, one to ten scale, ten being the one, uh, ten being the most, one being the least. What is Miles Turner's desire to stay in Indiana? Uh, look, I, I think Miles Turner's always liked Indiana, but obviously with the the Aiton inclusion in the Pacers plans this summer and the fact that he's never ever been an unrestricted free agent and had the chance to be courted by other teams and get the biggest deal likely of his entire career has to be something that he's considering so if the Pacers can give him the most money that he would possibly get on the open market right now I think he'd be at a 10 and they can do that uh, but if that offer isn't on the table then it's not going to be a 10 right so I think it all depends on the money in that in that decision because of his looming free agency. So it's impossible to say exactly what that number is, but in terms of actually enjoying playing for the Pacers right now and, and liking Indiana, look, Miles Turner always has enjoyed this, this city and is definitely fitting in well and saying the right things about this team. So I would put that in six or seven as well. Uh, Tony, should we put, and again, Tony East is with us here, T East NBA on Twitter. Should we put more stock into Miles Turner changed agents for a reason, and that reason is probably to find the best, best dollar possible? Yeah, I think you can always put stock into players changing agents for whatever their specific goals are for free agency. And I don't, you know, look, Turner told Jalen Smith to get his money last year, and most players have some sort of money motivation and free agency. So, yeah, I think there's something to that uh, to some extent. And, and, yeah, you know, for every player, of course, that's going to be a significant thing. So, uh, but, but look, with, with a situation like this, with the Pacers specifically, like the, the rules for the extension were the same regardless of who his agent is, which I think is important to keep in mind. So if he if he found a new agent that's better at negotiating this type of deal for him, then maybe that, that was a motivator for him. But maybe it just has to do with, you know, relationships and, and finding the right situation for Miles Turner going forward. Say Turner is traded at the deadline. How do you see, like, the center position playing out for Indiana the rest of this season and then next year, uh, assuming, I guess, they don't make some monumental move at that position in the offseason? Yeah, if they don't get somebody back in the Turner trade as well, it would be a factor in their, in their center plan, certainly. But you know, they have a lot of depth at that spot, which is an interesting thing as this season has progressed. Like Isaiah Jackson's just not playing right now at all, right? Uh, Jalen Smith, they're back up five at the moment. Goga's not playing at all. They kept James Johnson this weekend through the contract guarantee. They're like, they have a lot of guys who can play center if Turner's not on the team. Now, they, they don't play nearly as well as Miles Turner, but they're, they're good players. You know, they, they promised Jalen Smith the starting spot before the season that has has gone away already, but Smith has proven to be better at the five. He started a few times last year, okay? So I would imagine that if, if Turner is dealt and no, no big man comes back in return, that Jalen Smith would start at center the rest of the way for the season, and then Isaiah Jackson would assume his duties as backup like he did after the All-Star break last season, and they would roll with that kind of similar rotation that they had with Goga in the mix, but uh, Goga's future, too. You know, he's a free agent this summer as well. Who knows? What's going to happen there? If they end up trading multiple centers, they might have to find a way to bring in a third one just in case the depth comes to comes to that. But I would imagine it would be Jalen Smith, the starter, and Isaiah Jackson, the backup, and see how that works, right, with a team that is is good and is in the mix for the playoffs. Is Daniel is Tice alive? <laughs> Daniel Tice is, is alive. Uh, he is actually closer to, you know, he's running full court now, and it sounds like he's closer to five on five, but... And I think I don't know where he would stand with this team, but I would imagine they would rather play Jalen Smith and Isaiah Jackson than Daniel Tice. I actually totally forgot about him, though. I'm glad for including his name. He does 
slip my mind every so often as he hasn't played for this team this year. So maybe if he's the best option, they would go with that. But I think they would like to see how their two young big Smith and Jackson can fit with this team if they're in a setting where they're you know really going for it, trying to win, trying to figure out where they can be in the postseason. Tony East is our guest. He's on the Payless Liquors Hotline. He is T East NBA on Twitter, covering the Pacers for SI Pacers, Forbes, uh, among others, Locked On Pacers as well. Um, Tony, I, I'm just amazed, quite frankly, at how this came together so fast. And I know that I'm, I'm a broken record, but what I mean by that is, you know, you were there, I mean, at the beginning of the year when the Pacers, I think even the Pacers are amazed, quite frankly, at how... You know, Aaron Neesmith, Andrew Nimhard, Tyrese Halliburton, Benedict Matherin, how that that core with Jalen Smith has gelled with Miles Turner and Buddy Heald and Chris Duarte, I guess, as the complementary pieces around it. And I look at it and I go, I, I don't know other than just time and maturation how much tweaking this group needs. What tweaks does it need, though? Yeah, they, they still aren't the most forceful defensive team every game, and I think that matters. At some point, you know, you, 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 they're probably close to a bottom 10 defense. They're a little above that by the numbers, but it's just not a consistent thing for them. Quite yet, they found lineups that are a little better there, you know, as the second half of the season goes. Finding maybe one more forward defensive piece will be a key for them at some point in this team-building process, right? If Shea set has a lot of duties as being the only person above Six foot five, who isn't a center that plays in that rotation every day, right? Things like that will be something that, as this team grows, sure they have pieces that fit very well together. Their new starting five is is clicking really well and has been for about a month and a half now since they changed to it. But uh, you know, finding one more guy who can do that seems like it would be very valuable for this team. And they continue to be miserable on the glass. Like th- th- it is, a, it is definitely their biggest weakness as a team right now, and that is a consequence of the way they play. Their new starting five that's working is incredibly small, right? Aaron Neesmith plays the four. He's, you know, six 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 five. whatever website you look at will have it differently. And they try to run in transition, so they aren't, they aren't going for the rebound as much as, as other teams are necessarily, but uh, th- th- that has been a problem for them. Rebounding has caused them to lose a couple of games this year, and it- it's hard to have the talent to do that and play they want to play. So I think finding the right balance of rebounds and, and doing the things you want to do as well as maybe getting one more forward piece at some point, whether that's this year, this summer, next year, whatever, uh, would go a long way to, to getting this core as constructed and is doing very well uh, a little farther, a lot farther, really. Tony, Rick Carlisle, Kevin Pritchard, whoever you talk to inside that building, they were very honest in the offseason about this is a rebuild. We are taking a step back to hopefully take multiple steps forward. Obviously, from a win-loss record, they have taken some very positive steps in the right direction this season. But I guess my question is, what were the Pacers' goals? Were were the goals in this rebuild to get to that second tier of kind of Eastern Conference teams where they've been for long, long stretches here over the last couple decades? Or was the goal loftier to kind of shoot for the stars and think, all right, Halliburton's a piece, a, a major piece, of course. We think Matherin has major piece sort of potential, but we we still need one more to really get potentially to that top tier. Do you think they were a, hey, let's just get back to being a perennial type of playoff team, or let's shoot for the moon a little bit and see if we can get to the Milwaukee, Boston, Philly tier? I think they were more the latter, certainly, the way they were talking in the offseason. Like you said, you know, Kevin Pritchard was talking in his first media availability this season and, and talking about their new vision, which is, you know, more longer term and is less year to year and, you know, how that skews younger and all these things. But something he said is, you know, he said, I get asked all the time, do we have a core? And he said, no, we don't yet, right? We have to add to that core. And that was very telling. And not, not even to say that he didn't believe in the talent he had, but just that he thought they needed to add more young talent at some point, right? And so I thought, or I interpreted that to mean that, they would like to add one more dude to the like good, you know, solid. This is a build, a building block kind of piece to this team at some point, whether that's the draft, free agency, trade, whatever. And there's a lot of ways they could do that. And right, you know, Rick Carlisle thing he says at media day is this is a new era of Pacers basketball, right? And he was talking about how a little bit how this season would be more for him, a lot more teaching, you know, teaching skills and long term development habits and things like that. That 
it takes a lot more day to day focus on skills and big picture things, all the sorts of stuff that make that suggested the Pacers were thinking with a much more long term vision this season to help them get that that last piece, that last bit of talent for this core. And yet, you know, all that stuff that they've been doing has turned into a 23 and 18 team with two obviously very good future players and Tyrese Halliburton and Benedict Matherin and a bunch of other good young players. But I, I still believe that there is a long-term vision to get another, the dude on this team at, at some point. Yeah. I, Tony, remind me, they have two first round picks this year, right? There's no, there are no other picks that are coming in. Is that right? Or are there are three. They have three. They have their own Boston's and Cleveland's. That's and if right. the Rockets finish with the worst record, they have, the 31st pick, the first pick in the second round again, which that's a lot of ammo for stuff that it's hard to get. It's going to be hard to fit in a bunch of late first rounders onto their team. I didn't realize that. Wait, say that again about the early second rounder. Who was that? <laughs> so it's a very confusing trade. Uh, so if the Rockets end up with the worst record and have the 31st pick, the Pacers get it. But if it's like 32nd through 40 something, it goes to a different team. It's it's oh, so confusing. God. But, but the but NBA, why? All that here, but. NBA Why do they do this? <laughs> You're asking the wrong guy. But, yeah, if the Rockets have the worst record, they, they could have the, the top pick in the second round as well. I'm telling you. Can you imagine that? Four picks in the first 31? If they can find the steal of last year's draft was Andrew Nimhard. I mean, that guy's he's playing oh, yeah. significant. Yeah. He's a major part, Tony, of what they're doing. And, I mean, I'm watching late in games, and I'm thinking, man, they got four guys out on the floor that are all you know so young, and he's – he literally is just as cool as, as a cucumber, man. Like, that guy just – he can flat-out play. If they can get another one of those out of one of those three and hit on it, they're in good shape. Really yeah, good shape. I was shape. talking with, with uh, Dustin Dupriar from the Indy Star about that. Like, if you were naming the biggest surprises for the Pacers this season, Andrew Nembard might be number one. Yeah. Like, this, this kid was a point guard at Gonzaga last year. He goes in the second round. Now he's playing small forward and is guarding Damian Lillard or whoever on any given night. And – doing a wonderful job putting 31 on Steph Curry's head in a road win. Like, who, who saw any of that coming? And he's, my, you know, he's one of their best perimeter defenders this season. They picked him in the second round six months ago. You know, it, it's, it's been unbelievable how good he's been. Yeah, and both ends of the floor. I mean, just putting a lot on his plate, to your point, playing a little bit out of position, probably offensively, and he has been tremendous. T East NBA on Twitter. It's the Pacers and Knicks tomorrow night from Madison Square Garden. Tony, as always, man, terrific stuff. Thank you. Awesome. Thanks for having me, guys.